You're tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch, and on this very special broadcast, we're bringing you some highlights, or lowlights, depending on your perspective, of the National Citizens' Inquiry, Canada's response to COVID-19. According to the organizers, the desire for a public inquiry has been building amongst Canadians since 2021. With governments enacting ever-unprecedented policies, there was an increasing desire to independently and critically examine the precedents that were being set. The NCI is citizen-led and funded initiative that is completely independent from government. The hearings have so far been conducted in six cities, with two more coming by the middle of this month. I should also point out, in the interest of full transparency, that I myself engaged in presenting a viewpoint to the inquiry when it was in Winnipeg one month ago. In spite of some condemnation by notable individuals and virtually no coverage by mainstream press. I'm not telling you what to think. I simply urge you to get a second perspective on the viewpoints in this broadcast and then compare it with the views in the more common mainstream and political views expressed and, and come to your own interpretation of events. I should also alert you that some listeners may find messaging against the common beliefs about COVID treatment across the board to be extremely troubling. I urge listeners to express discretion before proceeding further with the broadcast. We will start with a presentation in Vancouver recently by Dr. Jarls Hoff. He has been a longtime emergency doctor in Lytton, BC, who questioned the safety measures associated with the vaccine and paid a terrible price for his efforts. Here's Dr. Hoff on the Global Research News Hour. People need to know that there has never been any successful vaccine made against coronaviruses. And so when the first dangerous coronavirus appeared in 2002, which came out of Wuhan in China, which was called the SARS virus, following that, scientists tried to make a gene-based vaccine against it because all previous conventional vaccines against coronaviruses had failed to either be safe or effective. So they, would test, they tested this on laboratory animals. Ferrets and mink and other animals like that are very susceptible to coronaviruses, and so they, gener they developed a gene-based vaccine which they tested on these laboratory animals. And when they took blood from these laboratory animals that had been vaccinated, they found they had antibodies to the, to, the, to the coronavirus, and they realized that they had discovered a brilliant, new, cheap, and effective way of making vaccines. However, several months later, when they challenged these laboratory animals with the infectious organism that they had been vaccinated against, they found that these laboratory animals became extremely sick, and many of them died. So this, this new type of vaccine turned out to be a complete failure. In fact, what they had created was not a vaccine, but an anti-vaccine. Because instead of protecting those animals against this new virus, it actually made them more vulnerable than if they had not been vaccinated. And the reason why I'm telling you that is that I'm going to show you what has happened to Canada, and exactly the same thing has happened here. So... 
when I heard that they were again using gene-based vaccines against SARS-CoV-2, the second SARS virus, I was not filled with hope or confidence because I knew that the previous efforts had been a disastrous failure. So, and when I heard that with the new vaccines, they weren't even doing animal trials, I was even more concerned. When I realized that they were rolling this out with, with no long-term safety data, it had only been, the, the shots had only been tested on a select group of relatively healthy adults, no children, no pregnant people, no frail elderly, no First Nations people, a, a lot of demographic groups that had, had literally not been tested on at all. And it was warp speed technology, which is a disaster for any vaccine, and particularly for a brand new technology that had no history of safety or effectiveness. So two and a half months into, this, into the VAX rollout, when 12 countries in Europe had already shut down the AstraZeneca vaccine because of, of life-threatening blood clots, and Canada was continuing to barrel on with it because Trudeau said even though it wasn't safe for the people of Europe, it was fine for Canadians, I thought that this was a significant safety signal that we could not afford to ignore. And so I sent an email to a group of doctors, a do, a, a medical colleagues, doctors, nurses, and pharmacists in, in the Lytton Lillooet area of southern British Columbia, saying, we have reached a turning point in this vaccine rollout. There is a serious safety signal in Europe. And, and for any healthcare practitioner to administer these shots without informing the people of, of, of the risk of harm there is a serious liability issue for those people because there is no informed consent. I sent this as a private email to 18 colleagues. One of those people sent this to the regional health authorities and three days later I was in a meeting with my superiors there who told me that I was guilty of causing vaccine hesitancy and that that private email was being sent to the College of Physicians and Surgeons as a complaint because I was putting people at risk by creating vaccine hesitancy. And I was told that I was not allowed to say anything negative about these vaccines in the course of my work as an emergency room doctor. And I was told that if I had any questions about them, the questions were not to be directed to my colleagues, but to the medical health officer in charge of the vaccine rollout for our area. So I accepted my reprimand. I then began to see very serious neurological problems arising in my own patients. I had been these people's family doctor for 29 years. I knew them very well. And when I saw new disease processes initiated in these people that I had no explanation with, that all started anywhere between, anywhere up to 72 hours after their shot in every case, I sent a letter to this medical health officer that I had been told to direct my questions. And I asked them what disease process was being initiated by this gene-based therapy and how, as these people's doctors, should I be treating it? And I asked whether it was ethical to continue this vaccine rollout in the light of the evidence of harm. And the silence was deafening. That letter was sent as a complaint to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So I then drafted a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry, where I 
essentially put, I, I set out the number of people that had been vaccinated and the number of people that, from that group that had neurological problems. And I gave an exact breakdown of the, of the risk of neurological harm. And it might interest you to notice that the, the CARES data, which is the Canadian Adverse Event Reporting System, records neurological injuries as the top category of injury. And that is exactly what I was seeing. I was also seeing lung and heart problems and skin problems and other issues but neurological problems was number one. So I sent a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry where I asked many of the same questions. She referred them, she, she did, I, and because I was warned she doesn't reply to, to letters, I was told that I better, had better make it an open letter because it was just going to go straight into the shredder if it just went to her. So it went as an open letter and attracted international attention because at that point, the Moderna vaccine had not been incriminated for causing neurological harm. And all of my initial problems that I was seeing were all from Moderna. So the matter was referred to as a vaccine safety specialist. And I was offered a telephone meeting with this top vaccine safety specialist appointed by Dr. Bonnie Henry. And I asked this vaccine safety specialist all the same questions. What disease process has been initiated in my patient to cause, patients to cause all these problems? And she assured me that these were not from the vaccine, that these were all coincidences, or if they weren't coincidences, were from poor injection technique. In other words, the, the needle was incorrectly positioned in the deltoid muscle. And I said, but these symptoms are all over the rest of their body. It cannot be from a misplaced needle. That is logically and scientifically and medically absurd. But she assured me that these were not from the shot. These shots did not cause neurological problems. So I said, well, there is a crisis because my patients didn't have these problems before. Please, would you assist me to investigate what is causing this? And she said, no, she could not. The only thing she could do was to send me the, the, uh, the, the link for the vaccine injury reporting form that they should be reported. And I said, well, I've already got the vaccine injury reporting form. I want this investigated. So she said that she could not assist me with that. So I said, okay, if I submit vaccine injury reporting forms, will those trigger an investigation? She said, no, they will simply become statistics. So I realized that at the highest level that there was a denial of these safety signals that they did not want to know about safety signals. That, because this made absolutely no medical sense. Every doctor's highest priority should be the safety of their own patients. So I, I realized that I was essentially going to be on my own trying to figure this out. So about Five weeks after I'd received my gag order that I was not allowed to say anything negative about these shots in the course of my work, a vaccine-injured patient came into the emergency room. And I, it was a Saturday evening. I was on call for the emergency room. The nurse phoned me at home and explained that this patient had come in and what their symptoms were. And I said to her, I know that patient very well. She had COVID. She and her whole family had COVID five weeks ago. And it was a very minor illness for all of them. And now she is far more sick from the vaccine than she'd been from COVID. 
please will you tell her she doesn't need her second shot. She has natural immunity, and the evidence for that is that when she got COVID, it was very mild. That means she has natural immunity. Please tell her she doesn't need her second shot. And I explained to that nurse the evidence from, from Duke University in Singapore that was done in the first year of this pandemic that was very important research, and I'm going to go through it quickly now because everyone needs to know. When this new virus appeared, no one knew how long natural immunity would last. And the, the health authorities tell us it's a couple of months. They recruited people who had recovered from that first SARS virus and asked them if they could take blood from them to see if they were still immune. And they found that they were still immune 17 years later. It was not antibody immunity, it was T-cell immunity. So looking for antibodies is, is the tip of the iceberg. That's, this is T-cell immunity. And by the way, that is why... Um, so, and then, then they tested members of the, of the general population there to see... So if these people that had this first SARS virus were still immune to it 17 years later... What about the rest of the population that never had it? And they found that 50% of them, this was near the beginning of this pandemic, had natural immunity to it from the other coronaviruses that circulate every flu season. It was cross-immunity. And, the, and then they tested those people who had natural immunity to the first SARS virus to see if they were immune to COVID, and they found that the natural immunity covered COVID. And so the relevance of that, that those two viruses, the first SARS virus and the second SARS virus, were 20% different genetically. And so the importance of this is that if your natural immunity is good enough to defend you against a virus that is 20% different, a variant that is 20% different, it will protect you against every variant of of, of SARS-CoV-2, because even Omicron, which has 30 mutations making it different, is only 3% different. So I explained this all to this nurse, and I said, on the basis of this, please will you tell this patient that she doesn't need her second shot? And the nurse told me that she was not allowed to tell anyone she, that they didn't need a shot. So I said, okay, I'll tell the patient. I was fired after 31 years as an emergency room physician with not one single patient complaint against me in those 31 years. I was fired for saying that somebody who had natural immunity didn't need to be vaccinated against the disease to which they were already immune. Fortunately, I still had my medical license, even though I'd lost a significant part, at least 50% of my income, and I couldn't work as an emergency room doctor anymore, I still had my private practice. So I continued on, but I realized that I needed to try and find out how to help my patients. So when I discovered from the, uh, the biodistribution studies that Pfizer had hidden, that we knew that these vaccines go around your entire body, they do not just stay in your arm, the Pfizer's biodistribution studies on the lipid nanoparticles show that they literally take those messenger RNA strands into every part of your body. They go into your brain and your lungs and your heart and your liver and your reproductive organs and your bone marrow and everywhere. This vaccine doesn't just stay in your arm. It goes everywhere, into your brain and everywhere. I realized that because most of the absorption from your vascular system occurs in capillary networks, that's where most of the spikes are going to be. They, those spikes are going to be manufactured in your body, 
in the cells that surround your blood vessels and mostly the capillaries because that's where the blood slows right down and that's where absorption happens in our bodies. And so because knowing that those spike proteins are now going to make the surface of your cells rough and spiky, because that's what the spike protein is. It is the cells that make up the viral capsule of a COVID virus. That's what gives the coronavirus its characteristic shape, are these little spikes that stick out all around. And so I realized that the surface, the lining of your blood vessels in your capillaries is now going to be rough and spiky. And so I thought, well, as sure as smoking causes cancer, these spikes in the, in the, in the vascular endothelium are going to trigger clots. But most of the clots are going to be in the tiniest vessels where you may not even know they're there. So I realized that the only way to discover whether or not this clotting was, was occurring was to do a blood test called a D-dimer test, which is frequently done in the emergency room on any patients that a doctor thinks may have have a blood clot somewhere in their body. So as my patients would come in for their appointment, for whatever it was, I would... I would ask them if they'd had their COVID shot and, and how was it going, because I was trying to figure out how many people were being harmed by this. And so I was asking everyone that came in, have you had your shot? And if so, how did it go? And, and I was trying to find people who would be willing to have this D-dimer test before their COVID shot and then one week later so that I had a baseline, so that I had a control on every patient and when I had literally got the first eight people's blood work back, and five out of the eight had a positive D-dimer, I could not keep silent. I had an interview coming up with uh, Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson. And she asked me what I wanted to talk about. And I said, I want to tell you what's happening to my patients. And I told her that at that point, uh, it was only eight people's results I'd got back, but 62% had evidence of clotting from these vaccines. And these were not vaccine-injured people. These were people who thought their shot did no harm. These were people who shot, thought, thought this shot was keeping them safe, and five out of eight had positive D-dimers. And that interview took off like wildfire around the world. It's now been subtitled into many languages that I do not recognize, but it created, it sort of blew the lid off this rare clotting thing. So tragically, literally over, shortly over a week later, our town and my medical practice and the lab where all these tests were done was burned to the ground in the Lytton fire. So that was the end of my reason. I was in my office seeing patients, and I literally just folded my laptop. I grabbed my D-dimer research, grabbed a few other things, and we ran out of the building, and everything burned to the ground, including the emergency room, where I'd worked for all these decades. So, of course, the College of Physicians and Surgeons claims that my... Um, statement that this causes microclotting is misinformation. And I should just tell you that in total, I only ended up with 15 people, and more than half had the clotting. And my concern with the clotting is that this is permanent damage. A clotted vessel never goes back to normal. It is permanently damaged, and the damage will accumulate with every shot, 
And the worst part was that these people had no idea that they had been damaged. What has happened to Canada is exactly what happened to those laboratory animals that were tested with the vaccine against the very first SARS virus, where it literally, th that so-called vaccine ended up working as an anti-vaccine and made them more vulnerable to the disease than if they had not been vaccinated. So this is a graph from the government of Canada that actually goes up to, to mid-March of this year. I've marked on there where the vaccine rollout began in, in mid-December 2020. And I've marked on there exactly one year later when, because of all of the, the fear propaganda, they had persuaded over 80% of the population to have at least two shots. And you can see what happened to the number of people in hospital with COVID once we had most people double vaxxed. We, and, and you can see it's never gone back down to what it was before. Previously, before there were any vaccines at all, in between the waves, we'd have almost nobody in hospital with COVID. It never goes back to that. We literally, this means that COVID is here to stay. We will never achieve herd immunity because of the damage done to people's immune systems from these shots. And this graph is the proof of it. You can see that literally it's now, it, it, it's, it's now endemic. This is not a pandemic. This is endemic because we will never, so many people have had their immune systems so damaged. And we know it's not just COVID. People are con that have, have had these shots are constantly sick with almost everything because it goes to every part of their body. You just heard the testimony by Dr. Charles Hoff, essentially contradicting the dominant reports all over the mainstream media that the vaccine is safe and effective. Next, we'll hear stories of personal tragedy by two of several more lay victims of some aspect of our COVID policies in Canada. First up is Mary Elena Rippo, who is incidentally I've interviewed in the past long before COVID. This testimony is followed by the loss of trucker Dave Hartman. And I appeal to them to pay attention to all the populations that would be affected by these masks and people with bronchial problems, that's what I have, COPD, of course, uh, people uh, uh, who had difficulties hearing, uh, anybody who was deaf would be incapacitated, and I especially spoke about children, how children's lives would be affected in, the, in a long-term long, in a long way. Uh, while doing that uh, you know, presentation, uh, you know, preparing for it, I found out that they had no information they had no data. They had nothing that would you know, justify doing something so drastic. They had no idea of a precautionary principle. Nobody who had prepared that material, you know, the go ahead, uh, had, had any knowledge. He came to his office and he, was, he sounded sad and uh, And he told me that I had, my breast tumor had spread to my bones. And, uh, and I was not operable. I had stage four. And, and he comforted me, he touched me, he hugged me. He probably had to worry about somebody walking in and seeing him without the, ma without the mask. And he invited me to come back any time to talk. 
and um, I walked out of the city hospital and I didn't know what to do, where should, what should I go and cry? And I thought, I can't go on a bus, so I'm going to go to the nearby uh, coffee shop. City Perks, nice, nice place. And I could go there and get the cup of coffee and I could have a scone and scone and I would go in a corner and I'll cry. I went in and before the, the two women who were working there, that was very early in the morning, I was the first, uh, first uh, I was going to say the first patient, but the first customer. And uh, uh, before they said, before I said good morning or hello or something to that effect, and they said, one of them said, where's your mask? Um, I said, well, actually, I can't wear a mask. Well, we're, we're here, we have to mask. Didn't you see the notice outside? And uh, I, I said, I actually didn't. And she said, well, if, if you can't wear a mask, then you at least have to sign this. You have to sign your name and the address. And I said, well, that's not, that's not mandated yet. That's been talked about. It's not happening. She said, well, these are the, our rules. This is a private business. And this is, these are our rules. And uh, that was the end of that, except, you know, I, I left very distraught. I had, maybe I had hoped that I could tell them my story and then, and then cry somewhere. And they would comfort me. Uh, they would be human beings. I, um, I left. And, and wrote a post on my Facebook telling about my experience. I, may, I didn't mention why I had gone there and why I wanted to cry, but I just told about the treatment and said that I felt I was bullied and, and I, I would never go to such a place. And that was, that was on the 23rd of October, 20. The next day I woke up I had hundreds of hostile messages on my Facebook. I was totally flooded. There were people that hated me so much. They wanted me to go into a, they wanted me to get COVID and die. They wanted me to go to a hospital where they wouldn't treat me. They wanted, they just wished me that I would, something, I would disappear. And, uh, you know, incredible phenomena. Having a kind of terminal, terminal um, prognosis devastating prognosis, then being attacked at the same time by uh, fellow citizens. I mean, they're supposed to be fellow human beings. They didn't know me, and they had decided to, to, to undergo a, a, a full, full, uh, full attack on my person, personhood. Sean's biggest fear in the world was needles. He was terrified of them. It was his biggest fear but he wanted to play the game he loved, so he took the vaccine. Four days after that, he went to the hospital, to emergency. He had brown circles around his eyes. He was vomiting, he had a rash, and an extremely sore shoulder opposite to his injection shoulder. The doctor failed to do any blood work. He didn't do a D-dimer, he didn't do a troponin test. He gave him Advil and sent him home. On September 26, 2021, Sean went to play hockey that night and uh, everything seemed okay. He came home and went to bed. And on the morning of September 27th, 
Sean was found dead on the floor beside his bed. It's really hard though, every day is so hard. The hardest part for me is sleeping. I, I wake up every hour. I cry multiple times a day. I'm a truck driver and so I'm alone with my thoughts all day and I think about Sean so much. There, I can't listen to songs on the radio anymore. There's a whole list of songs I can't hear. And I, I'm taking antidepressants and I'm in grief counseling now with other parents who have lost their children. I, I will never do Christmas ever again. Christmas means nothing to me now. I will never see Sean get married. I will never meet what would have been his beautiful wife. I won't have any grandkids ever. I can't live with the cause of death being unascertained because in my opinion the vaccine killed my son. There's no other logical explanation. He was a perfectly healthy boy with no underlying conditions. And now I have to live without the most important person of my life. And every day is pure hell. Every hour, the only time I'm not in pain is when I go to sleep. This is the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. My name is Michael Welch, and this hour we are hearing select extracts from the National Citizens' Inquiry taking place in multiple cities across the country. Next, we will focus on a former representative of the mainstream media, Rodney Palmer, has worked professionally for the CBC, CTV, the Globe and Mail over the course of 20 years as a journalist, which includes time covering the SARS outbreak in 2002. He comments here on the troubling changes to the way the mainstream press, and particularly the CBC, is covering the COVID pandemic. Here's what he had to say in the Toronto hearings. So what I started noticing was something very different. About a week, maybe two at the most, into the emergency, there was a story on The National by Adrian Arsenault, one of the greatest broadcasters we have, a national treasure. Adrian has a particular ability to appear to be discovering the facts in the moment, even if it's take 20. She can do it every time. She's a genius at what she does. But she turned this ability against us. I saw a piece on the 4th of April where she opens up and she's looking at her phone and she says, what do you do if this happens? Somebody sends you a family text, say it's your father, and he thinks that the, the virus was manufactured by China. This is on April 4th, 2020. It says 2023 on the, on the slide, that's incorrect. It was 2020. And I thought, well, wait a minute, how do you know it wasn't manufactured in a lab in China? What evidence does the CBC have 20 days into this or 15 days into this that this was not manufactured in a lab? There was an assumption that she put forth instantly and then she went to an expert guest who said, well, don't embarrass your father, you'll just push him away. You've got to bring him in and you've got to kind of convince him. And I thought, well, I'm a father. Who are you speaking to? You're telling my children 
not to believe their father. You're telling, and I have some uh, expertise and some experience in this particular field. And I thought it was shocking that the CBC was trying to get in between me and my children. And the expert witness was from an organization called First Draft, and she simply says, I'm from First Draft, we're a nonprofit that helps people navigate misinformation on the media. And I think of nonprofits, I think of the Cancer Society, the Diabetes Society, I don't think of a group of people who are attempting to um, change the minds of strangers from believing things that they don't want them to believe. I thought that was all very odd. So I looked into First Draft, and I saw that this organization is, um, was developed and is developing new techniques and methodologies for investigating online spaces. Our latest approach revolves around the concept of recipes. As with food recipes, says their website, these, sets, these steps give directions to investigators or to reporters. So they give samples of what you can do. They say, here's an investigation how anti-vaccination websites build audiences and monetize information. This is two weeks into the emergency. Here's the recipe. How are these anti-vaccination websites funded? Investigate the ad trackers with GEFI and DMI tracker tool. Now these are tools that they provide to apparently the CBC. Now there was a story that circulated later about anti-vaccination websites on marketplace and how they make their money. So this first draft group is now feeding the CBC their stories. A second example, pro-Russian networks are driving anti-Pfizer vaccine disinformation. Now, I don't know why the CBC has to get behind Pfizer, who, which has paid out the largest criminal settlement in the history of American justice, but this is what this organization is saying, don't be against Pfizer. The Russians are behind it. The recipe was track misinformation across platforms such as 4chan, 8kun, and Reddit. So they're even telling them how to go after them, where to go after them. They're directing the CBC. I was astonished that this organization was put forth as an expert on how to not believe your father, but not embarrass him at the same time. So this, to me, had nothing to do with news gathering. Ten days later, after the CBC did that story, the Washington Post did some real journalism. They pointed out that the State Department cables were sent from the U.S. Embassy in Beijing to Washington in 2018 warning about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that it was unhygienic, and in particular, they said there was a serious shortage of appropriately trained technicians and investigators needed to safely operate the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is January 2018. And there was two cables sent, and the reporter saw one of them. The first cable, which I obtained, he says, this is Josh Rogan from the Washington Post, warns that the lab's work on bat coronaviruses and their potential human transmission represented a risk of a new SARS-like pandemic. So not only at the moment when Adrian Arsenault was telling you, don't believe your father if he thinks it came from a lab, it was not only probable that COVID came from the lab, but it had been predicted that it would happen two years prior by the US government. So how does Adrian Arsenault say it wasn't and don't believe anyone, including your family? Flash forward a year, Vanity Fair magazine, which is known for its excellent investigative reporting, published an extremely long and exhaustive piece where all they did was go online and look at publicly available scientific papers going back about a decade. The first one in 2013 
was by Xi Zheng Li, who's the director of emerging infectious disease at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. She's, she's known as the bat lady, and this is not a derogatory term. Actually, her scientist friends started calling her that because there was an outbreak of a SARS-like respiratory virus in a mine, and the miners died very, very quickly. And she is documented to having gone to that mine, scraped the bat guano off the mine, and brought it to Wuhan to examine. In 2014, she began publishing about the coronavirus from Chinese bats. In 2015, there was another paper that Vanity Fair found where <laughs> Xi Zhengli discussed successfully inserting a protein from this Chinese horseshoe bat virus into the SARS virus of 2002, creating a brand new infectious pathogen. 2015, this scientific paper was published. Vanity Fair found it online. CBC could have found it, but they were too busy telling you don't trust anyone who believes this. In 2019, there was a paper actually published by one of the lab directors at Wuhan outlining the safety deficiencies in the Wuhan lab where he worked. And in 2019, right around the time that the U.S. government, the U.S. Embassy in uh, Beijing was warning Washington about a potential SARS-like pandemic leaking out of this unhygienic lab, a number of the Wuhan lab scientists published a paper together describing genetically engineered rats that they had, they had grown with humanized lungs and developed them in the Wuhan lab. So this is a pretty hot smoking gun coming out of the Wuhan lab. There are three labs in the world working on coronavirus, according to the Vanity Fair investigation. Two of them in the United States, one of them's in Wuhan. If this thing started at a wet market outside the, wet market outside the Wuhan lab, it was because one of the staff members of the Wuhan lab walked into the wet market and brought it there. That is the most likely scenario. Now flash forward to this month, March 2023, FBI chief, US FBI chief Christopher Wray says the China lab leak was most likely. The quote is, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident. So the CBC had no evidence that it wasn't. They wanted you to believe that it wasn't. There's a definition of news gathering, and you'll see interestingly that news gathering is one word in the, in the English language. It's not two words as it, as it appears that it should be. And that's because it's very specific. It's the process of doing research on news items, especially ones that will be broadcast on television or printed in a newspaper. Now, how much research was done by the CBC to determine 10 days after the emergency that it didn't happen in a lab? Another definition here is propaganda. Persuasive mass communication that filters and frames the issues of the day in a way that strongly favors particular interests, usually those of a government or a corporation. Also the intentional manipulation of public opinion through lies and half-truths and the selective retelling of history. This is what was going on in that piece. That's why it felt so wrong to me, because there was no news involved. There was only propaganda. What the Washington Post did with its lab leak theory story 10 days after the CBC said it wasn't from the lab was news gathering. It was investigative reporting. What the CBC did when it said don't trust your family if they think it came from a lab, that's propaganda. That's the difference in the definition of those two things. The Vanity Fair piece, reviewing scientific publications for a decade 
and cover, uncovering the fact that human lungs were engineered on rats in Wuhan lab in 2019, just before the outbreak, is news gathering. Exceptional news gathering. I'm jealous of how good that news gathering was. What the BBC did, reporting on the FBI saying they've known for a long time that it came from the lab, was news gathering. That's kind of news of the day, daily news. They said it, we're telling you they said it. What the CBC did by warning Canadians not to trust their fathers about a lab leak theory was propaganda. March 4th, 2021, about a year after the emergency, the editor-in-chief of CBC News, Brody Fenlon, wrote on his blog, a recent survey found that about half of Canadians think journalists are purposely trying to mislead them. Well, that's because we're on to you. At least half of us pay attention to our gut, and we know that you are purposely trying to mislead us. But Mr. Fenland said that CBC is going to correct this. To promote trust in journalism, the CBC has joined four organizations. I didn't know that they joined these organizations until I began to look into this a little bit. One of them is called the Trusted News Initiative, which is designed to filter news through its own trust filter system. Another one's called the Journalism Trust Initiative. It's basically the same name, but this one uh, does more or less the same thing. Another one's called the Trust Project, and then Project Origin. And notice that none of these organizations have the word truth in them. If you tell the truth consistently, trust is automatic. If you don't tell the truth consistently, you have to say things like, please trust me. So I'm just going to quickly outline what these things are, because they're all basically the same thing. The Trusted News Initiative and the CBC announced together on the 27th, prior to the Adrian Arsenault piece, that CBC and Radio Canada are joining an industry collaboration of major media and technology organizations to rapidly identify and stop the spread of harmful coronavirus disinformation. I think the pandemic really started in China about four months prior to this, and four months prior to an unknown virus killing so many people, there is no disinformation. The scientists among our commissioners will tell you there is only information, and all information is critical at the beginning, particularly at the beginning. So immediately they were in a position of pushing one side of the story. Stopping misinformation means censoring. Censorship, pure and simple. The Journalism Trust Initiative, a second organization that they joined, is run by an outfit called Reporters Sans Frontières, Reporters Without Borders. And when I was working as a correspondent in the Middle East, the Reporters Without Borders would uh, take the side of, say, a Syrian journalist who was writing something against the dictator Hafez al-Assad and maybe had been imprisoned and they were trying to bring attention of the world to this imprisoned journalist. That's the kind of excellent work this group did. In 2020, it shifted completely to start something called the Journalism Trust Initiative, starting an algorithmic indexing based on their criteria to improve your revenues. Meaning if you, if you run your news organization through their filter, they'll make sure that it gets up to the top of the Google page so you'll get more clicks and more money will improve your revenue. There was an incentive there. Project Origin is another one that is uh, the, it's a collaboration between the CBC, the BBC, the New York Times, and Microsoft. And one of these organizations is not a news organization. It's a tech organization. One of the things they talk about here is that they, um, the technical provenance approach in conjunction with media education and synthetic media detection techniques to help establish a foundation of trust. 
Not truth, trust is what they're looking for. One of their uh, tools is called the power of the machine, harnessing AI to fight disinformation. So I can only uh, surmise from this that Microsoft is using AI to identify anybody speaking words that they want to identify as to be censored or call misinformation, label misinformation so you will agree with their censorship. The next one is called the Trust Project. Now this one is largely tech. Craigslist, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft are involved. Again, helping tech support trustworthy news. Helping tech. What do we care about tech and, and, and truth and news? How are they together all of a sudden? We stand for integrity. They say, look for our eight trust indicators. We built the trust indicators. So they have listed, all they have to do is tell the truth. They don't need no eight trust indicators. And interestingly, Google, Facebook, and Bing all use the trust indicators in display and behind the scenes. So somehow they are censoring it before it gets to you. I'm going the wrong way. These are the members of the trust project. Now, this goes way beyond the CBC. Globe and Mail is also in there. CTV is a member. The Walrus Magazine in Canada is supposed to be an independent thought magazine. They're part of this project, the Canadian Press. So I put this up there to let you know that it is not just the CBC. The reason they all sound the same is because they're all part of this trust campaign. But the CBC is also part of something else. It's something uh, with just public broadcasters. It's called the Global Task Force for public media. Global Task Force exists to defend the values and interests of public media. Excellent. But it was formed to develop a consensus and a single strong voice among them. And that's the CBC, BBC News, ABC Australia, Korean Broadcasting, they joined recently, France Television, Radio New Zealand, ZDF from Germany, and SVT from Sweden. Now I can't imagine having worked at the CBC for almost a decade and being told every day our job is to elevate the voices of Canadians on Canadian stories to unite our vast country and make us all feel as one. What single issue do we have with Korean broadcasting when that is our mandate? What issue does Radio New Zealand have with Swedish television when their mandate is the same to elevate their own people? This is a bizarre conglomerate of public broadcasters and I would put forth to the panel that the public broadcasters are the ones that are not easily bought because the advertisers don't exist and therefore they have no influence. So something else was done here. An excellent example of CVC propaganda it was a piece they had, Meet the Unvaccinated. Those people who, who are these strange people? Why some Canadians still haven't had the shot? The, the sub-headline was, some suspect the science, some don't think they're vulnerable, and some just don't trust the government. There was no mention that the vaccines were not fully tested by the standards that vaccines have always been tested in Canada. No mention of that. People knew that. But there was no mention that that's maybe why they didn't want to do it. There was no mention of the adverse reactions that were already at this point being reported on government websites, including deaths from the COVID-19 vaccines. They eliminated that side of the story. They, they suppressed one side because it wasn't news gathering. It was propaganda. To tell us more about the Canadian Inquiry, I'm joined by Michelle leduc Catlin. Uh, she's the spokesperson for the event. You had people across the country expressing concerns uh, from early on. 
and eventually you sought an official inquiry into it. I mean, fill in some of the details. How? Tell us more about how it was initiated and, and who was involved. Mm-hmm. So initially it was just a, a group of citizens who said, you know, we need to create something so that we can really dig into what happened over the last few years because nobody's doing this. Nobody is creating an official inquiry. So a nonprofit was created. Um, Preston Manning was one of the people who was in the beginning phases. He wasn't the first, but he was somebody who was interested in, in having this conversation. So he was the initial spokesperson. Um, then this nonprofit was set up with um, a structure where the NCI has no say over the outcome, right? So there's a separate bo- uh, group of commissioners. So the commissioners are appointed. They have an agreement to provide an unbiased uh, view and report at the end of all of this. So that's how the whole thing started, just with this this idea of having an official inquiry, but one that had never been done before, one that was run by the citizens, for the citizens, funded by citizens. So no corporate sponsorship, no government sponsorship, just this new exercise in democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, you, uh, your, your site has highlighted how this inquiry is, is not backed by the government. However, there, there are indications that maybe the opposition is highlighting it. I mean, you mentioned, for example, Preston Manning, your predecessor. Uh, he'd been invited by Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, uh, whose antagonism toward the prime minister, I, I think, is pretty well established. And, and, and even Brian Peckford, who supported the idea of an inquiry initially, he denounced it last Friday, May the 5th. And I'll just say what he's, quote what he said. He said, the National Citizens Inquiry, while getting off to an early, early good start, suddenly compromises itself by one of his leaders becoming involved with a government inquiry. And one of the reasons for the National Inquiry's existence was for it to be independent of government. So the unethical nature of the National Citizens Inquiry disqualifies it from being considered anywhere legitimate. How do you respond to the allegations that your inquiry is about as trustworthy as Peckford would point out as a government inquiry would be? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a few things. I think it's unfortunate that he has taken that position. I, I really don't believe he understands what the NCI is at this point. Like this is so far beyond some personal political, um, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he is a political animal, right? And Preston um, is, is a politician. Preston was one of several volunteers one of several members of the initial committee. He has no power over this other than one vote in a very democratic process. Now, Brian Peckford had a a concern that by Preston being involved in this inquiry, which is a separate inquiry, that he would somehow compromise the integrity of the NCI. So Preston stepped down as the spokesperson. Uh, So if the spokesperson had that much power, I would now have that power, and I can assure you I do not. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, as I said, he's one of several voting members. He has no say over how this goes. And the NCI actually has no say over 
the recommendations or the report. This has nothing to do with the NCI. This is a very separate commissioner's report, right? These are independent commissioners. So none of that has any relevance. The other thing is that I think because he's a politician, he has a politician's understanding of what an inquiry is. This is not anything we've ever seen before. This is a a brand new muscle in democracy. This isn't even what the NCI started out as a couple of months ago. This is a movement. I mean, the people involved in the NCI now, there's no one person here who even knows who all the people are involved in the NCI. This is taken off in ways that we could not have predicted. So we have people out there who are creating initiatives to promote the NCI, to screen the testimony, to support the testimony that we know nothing about. There are there are posts um, online, there are memes being created that have nothing to do with the, the core committee of people who started the NCI. Like it really has a life of its own. And I think this is the really important thing to understand is that whatever this started out as, and it really was just, can we just talk? Can we hear what people have been going through that haven't been able from from people who haven't been able to speak can we hear from the scientists who have been censored can we hear these other voices and this was meant to be a let's all discuss this together in fact politicians the politicians responsible for the policies of the last few years have been sent summonses first they were invited to come and participate, give their their side of the story, give their testimony. Then they were sent summonses. They have been completely ignored. I, I was a witness at the inquiry as well. So just so you and, and the listeners are aware of that. Um, but Michelle, by the time this program goes to air, you'll be in the middle of the seventh round of hearings in Quebec uh, with the last round in Ottawa a week later. What aspects of the talks do you believe to be the most noteworthy to date? Okay, so I will answer two ways. One, I think the most important part is uh, the stories of the ordinary Canadians who have been so horribly impacted by the mandates, whether it's economically, um, because of lockdowns, or because of vaccine uh passports or the vaccine injured. We have heard the stories of ordinary Canadians. And I think this is in some ways the most important part of this, because anyone who has, is open to hearing information from sources outside of the mainstream media already knows some of that information, right? I think that the people who who recognize that something has not been right, that we haven't been given the full story. I think it's the personal stories from their friends and neighbors and family, colleagues, you know, these ordinary people. I think those are the things that are going to make the difference. And, you know, I wear this ribbon that says silent survivors given to me by someone who's, who is vaccine injured, whose husband is vaccine injured, whose son is vaccine injured and the horrific story she told me. And I wear it because I believe we are all silence survivors. Why is it that when, you know, there was a poll done before we started, three out of four Canadians felt that they had been harmed by mandates. Why wouldn't the government be doing an inquiry into what they could do better? That's where we started. 
What did we do well? What did we not do well? What could we do better? So these voices have not been heard. We have not heard from people. And I think that is the most important thing. Then I would say that there are a few key. Rodney Palmer's testimony about the media is a must watch so that people understand the media we grew up with is not the media that exists today. That's why shows like yours are so important because you're willing to question, to look at what's happening. The mainstream media has not even, you know, uh, not given us almost an ounce of attention. There's also the other aspects other than the health information, right? We've had experts on quality control, on um, uh, conflicts of interest within pharmaceuticals, on government um, uh, collusion with with, um, big business, with pharmacies, uh, with pharmaceutical companies. Um, We've talked about the the lack of protection from the charter. We've heard from various lawyers talking about what they're up against. We've talked about police. We've talked about so many, there's so many angles to this that I, I think people aren't aware of. I wasn't. I knew about the science. I'd been following and writing about the science for a couple of years, but the rest of these components, I didn't know. So I've been putting together summaries of each of the weekends uh, of each of the sorry each of the weeks of testimony in my blog, and I have links there to some of the most impactful. Um, I think it really depends on what people are looking for. You know, do they want more science? Do they want to hear about the legal aspects? Do they want to hear about the police? Do they want to hear about academia? You know, there's there's a a real cornucopia of corruption. Okay, Michelle Leduc Catlin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for listening. I reached out to several experts promoting the official story of COVID and the COVID treatment as far back as six days ago. One did not respond. When I reached out to Chief Provincial Health Officer Dr. Brent Rusin and his deputy Jazz Atwal, a media contact replied via email the following. The CPPHO declined this invitation. Decisions around COVID-19 restrictions are well documented and were based on the best available medical advice. That's it for the show. Next week we will attempt to get a response to the Citizens' Inquiry and, and some of the things said on this show. Please check out more of the Inquiry on the website nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. Thanks to the National Citizens' Inquiry access to audio. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced by CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Music was Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, available on the site purple-planet.com. Thanks to the National Citizens Coalition for access to the audio. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks for listening, and see you again in seven days.